Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be with you today on the Lord's Day. I love you. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're back. I know that many of you were here yesterday as we grieved the death of our beloved brother and friend Boyd. I know that many of you wish that you were able to be here and weren't able to be here. We have a good church. We have so much to be thankful for. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's inerrant and inspired word of the Bible. If you do not have a copy of God's word that you can call your own, we'd love for you to reach underneath the seat in front of you or near you. You could just grab one of the Bibles that are there, take that home with you. We'd love for you to consider that a gift from us to you so that you could read the Bible and learn more about Jesus Christ and him crucified and what it means to have a relationship with him. We are in a series of sermons studying 1 Peter. It's somewhere around page 1014 if you're using the Pew Bible. We're going to begin reading today in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. The Apostle Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope. If you like to write in your Bible, underline that, set your hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Underline that, be holy. In all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves, underline that, conduct yourselves, with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, not from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. We pray that you would help us to throw off the distractions of the week that are behind us and the anxieties of the week that are before us. We pray, Father, that even now you would help us to focus our minds and our attention on your word so that we might grow in grace and love and faith and hope and trust so that for those who are here today, they might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ by repenting of their sins and trusting in the Savior for the forgiveness of them. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see beautiful things in your word and that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. I'm reading a book on the Great Migration. 
throughout Isabel Wilkerson tells the stories of three people. Ida Mae Gladney, George Swanson Starling, and Robert Pershing Foster. Because they, like so many black Americans, had to learn how to live in their own land as strangers while looking for hope in lands that were not their own. After the Civil War, during Reconstruction, in the Jim Crow South, life was not the way that they expected it to be. They were alienated. They were put to death. They were slandered. They were lynched. They were treated differently simply because of the color of their skin. So they had to look elsewhere for hope. Places like Chicago and New York and Los Angeles and Detroit and Philadelphia. Though many of the circumstances are different and drastically so, Peter is writing to a people who are having to learn how to live in their own land differently, as if it's not their own land anymore. They're having to learn how to live in a world that is their home as strangers and exiles because they no longer belong simply because of their profession of faith in Christ. So last time we saw in 1 Peter, the indicative of what God has done for us precedes the imperative of what we are called to do for him. God's work of grace for us and for our salvation is the basis. It is the foundation of our obedience, which is why the inheritance and salvation believers possess and look forward to in Christ is the focus of verses 3 through 12 before the apostle ever exhorts us to, verse 13, set our hope on Christ's coming. Verse 15, devote ourselves to holiness. Verse 17, live in fear throughout the time of our exile. After celebrating what God has done for us to make us his people forever and ever in Christ, Peter says, live holy, live in hope, live in fear. And then on either side of that command to live in fear, he explains to us why that we should. Notice first the command, revere God. Look in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The imperative in our text is found in the second half of verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear. But what does Peter mean when he tells the people, conduct yourselves with fear, live in fear? Why should we live in fear when God has caused us to be born again to a living hope according to his great mercy? What distress can overtake our vision when our inheritance, the apostle tells us, is actually kept in heaven by God? What dread can overcome our faith when we are promised that the very outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. Peter is not telling the people, live in abject terror. 
that you need to live in front of God in such a way that you are afraid of God as if he's going to smite you at any given moment. He's not telling them that they need to walk on eggshells around God. He's telling them that they need to live reverently in their lives before God. Peter says that there is a very appropriate fear as we live our lives, specifically a fear as of living as if our hope is not in God. What we are to fear, verse 17 is not hoping in God, verse 13. When we're tempted to conduct our lives in a way that would show that our hope is in money rather than God, we should fear. And if you ever want to know, is money something that you're hoping in rather than God? What is consuming your time and attention? What gives you anxiety? What causes you consternation? What is the main source of fighting in your home? The things that you quarrel about the most the things that you are most possessive of and unwilling to let go in your life. When we are tempted to act in such a way that we show that our hope is in the pleasures of pornography or the power of control or the accumulation of material possessions or the acquisition of knowledge or the adoration of other people, we should fear. When we're tempted to live in such a way that we would show that our hope is in life circumstances, the relationships we do or don't have, the things that we wish that we had that we don't, we should fear. We should fear living in any way in this life that shows that we do not have hope in God, that betrays a lack of hope and confidence in God. As one pastor said, this is one crucial missing note in modern Christianity and one of the main reasons why so many Christians are such a carbon copy of the world. We think that grace means that there's nothing to fear about our behavior. But God is gracious and calls us back today to fear the behavior that leads to destruction. Friends, how you live your life matters and is of eternal significance. And believer, you should fear living, thinking, speaking, acting in any way that manifests a lack of hope and trust and faith in God. Peter says that we are to fear not hoping in God, verse 17, throughout the time of our exile, the entirety of our life, the duration of our earthly existence, the extent of all of our days this side of eternity. Reverent fear, according to Peter, informs all of our life for all of our life. And though that is easy to preach and easy for us to say and perhaps easy for us to affirm and write down in our notes today, it gets harder the longer that we live because it really doesn't feel extraordinary at all. After seeing Jesus cast out demons and perform miracles and heal the sick and raise himself from the dead, Peter had to learn what he is now trying to exhort these believers, these alienated Christians toward, Ordinary obedience in the fear of God throughout all of life and the day-to-day. After we changed the name of our church and particularized with the new constitution and a new covenant and a new confession of faith, I found myself in a lurch. I didn't know what to do. There was nothing left to change. We had the documents that we needed and the name that we wanted and elders to lead us and deacons to serve us. And I didn't know what to do until one mentor said, 
Raymond, what you need to do now is you need to prepare yourself for a long obedience in the same direction of doing the same ordinary things week in and week out until the Lord calls you home. And it was not until that moment that I realized that I needed, by faith and God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, to learn how to live as a pastor in an ordinary way for a long amount of time should the Lord tarry and give life. Day in and day out, fearing God and loving neighbors while doing ordinary things like visiting hospitals and officiating ceremonies and praying through my membership directory like everybody else and following up with people that I meet here on Sundays, all with reverent fear, but if I'm honest, and I would assume is the case for many of us in this room, sometimes that kind of obedience is boring because it does not feel very extraordinary or meaningful at all. Do you ever feel that you struggle with your life not being exciting? It's just super ordinary, boring, normal, and lacking any particular spark. Do you actually fantasize about doing something radical or extraordinary for the kingdom of God? Surely these Christians felt the same way because just like you, they are real people. And this probably was not the advice that they expected the apostle Peter to give them when they're living in their own land as alienated people who are now living as exiles in what they would call their home. It's not the advice that they expected, and it certainly wasn't the advice that they wanted when they are suffering. You need to live in hope. You need to be holy. And you need to live in fear. We're already living in fear. Why do we need to live in fear? Peter says, you may already be doing something very radical and extraordinary by conducting yourselves with fear throughout the duration of your life. You just can't quite see it yet. And in so doing, what Peter actually does here in this passage is he adjusts our definition of what it means to fear God. It is a long obedience in the same direction as we do ordinary Christian things, like come to church and observe the sacraments and read our Bibles and pray through our membership directories and persevere in prayer when it's hard and tithe of our monies like we do each and every week, and sing songs of praise to God, and serve the poor, and evangelize our neighbors, and then evangelize our neighbors again, and then evangelize our neighbors again, doing the same ordinary things day in and day out, week in and week out. And when we're doing that, even though that does not feel like it's changing the world, brothers and sisters, you are literally changing the world around you. You're doing something extraordinary. But why are we to live with reverent fear for God? Revere God, notice second, the first reason. God is the impartial judge. Look at the beginning of verse 17 now. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. I want to take one more step back before I go to this point. Just thinking of ordinary things. In particular, I want to think of people in this room because we have so many now, moms and stay-at-home moms. The ordinary things of like changing a diaper, which is exhausting, is one of the ways that you are changing the world in front of you. Literally serving God by wading through garbage as you raise somebody in the fear and admonition of the Lord. 
that never feels exciting. That is always exhausting and boring. And there are lots of things like that in this life that are super meaningful for the kingdom of God. Whether you're married or single, whether you're young or old, whether you're rich or poor or have a lot or a little, whether you're on stage or off stage, whether you're recognized as a leader or not, there are all types of ways as Christian people you can do ordinary things that are extraordinary in their impact for the kingdom of God. And we invite you to do that here. All right, end of point one, now to point two. Now second, the first reason, God, the impartial judge. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. On the front side of the command in the first half of verse 17 is the first reason to revere God. Peter says the reason for conducting ourselves with fear throughout the duration of our lives is that the one that we call Heavenly Father judges absolutely every person on the basis of the same kind of evidence. Verse 17, according to each one's deeds. Though you may feel there are different standards, Peter says there are not different rules for different people. There are not different standards at different times. There are not different expectations of different nations. There is one thing that saves, faith. And there is one standard of judgment, deeds. So what do your deeds say about your faith in the God you are commanded to revere? Because I can assure you they are saying something. They testify whether you actually believe what you say that you believe. They manifest where your hope is, whether you believe that is where your hope is or not. They display for all the world to see your loves. They exhibit in front of all of your family and all of your friends and all of your neighbors and all of your coworkers, your passions. They proclaim what you actually believe to be the gospel. The apostle provokes us to consider whether we actually call on God as father, verse 17, by emphasizing that he is the impartial judge with a conditional clause in verse 17, if, if you call on the one who has the character of father, then conduct yourselves with fear. If you call on the one who has the character of the father, then you need to live like one of his children. Don't just say that you're one of his children. That is one of the most difficult things to communicate to people in the 21st century. Just because you say you're a Christian does not mean you're a Christian. You have all met so many people who would tell you, I'm a Christian, why? Because I'm a Christian, why? Because I'm a Christian. And they don't live anything like a Christian. And they have a hard time receiving from you why it is that they're not a Christian. And you'd say, your life doesn't look anything like the Christian life. Nothing in your life is based on the Bible. All of your decisions are made out of your own wisdom. You don't care what God's word says at all. You look at God's word and you find a way around it. If you call on the one who is the father, then you need to look like his children, act like his children. Being a dad, one of the greatest blessings and sometimes one of the most infuriating things is when your children actually act like you and you begin to see this is wonderful. 
or you hate it and you realize that you are a sinner. But you, you see that God never has that problem. But you, you see that there's this resemblance because they live near you and in your presence. If you call on the one who has the character of the Father, then know that he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. He doesn't look at your tithing record or your 1099 or your W-2. He's not checking your church attendance. He doesn't care how many ministries you serve in here at the church or how long your name's been on the roll or how long your picture's been in the directory. He could care less if you walk up and down the boardwalk at Ocean City and share the gospel literally with every single person that you pass. None of that makes you one of his children. He judges impartially. None of that makes you one of his children and none of that earns any favor. You see, for so many of us, we don't live with repentance. We live in the sense where we're actually trying to earn favor from God. We're trying to do penance. If I do all of the right things, or if I do these things that will overcome the disaster I've made of my life or the sins that I've committed in my life, then God will actually forgive me for those disasters and those sins. And we're doing penance when what we should be doing is living a life of repentance because God will impartially judge You can do all of the right things and go to all of the right places and say all of the right things and know all of the right people and go to hell. He judges impartially. And for those of you in this room who have train wrecked your life and there is so much pain, that is good news. That God is not looking at all of the ways that you have train wrecked your life and there is hope that is extended to you in Christ. For Peter... The astonishing thing here is that God's tenderness and love as father is actually mingled with his judgment and the fear that should mark Christians in this world. And the criteria for that judgment is, verse 17, each one's deeds. Salvation is by faith alone. Judgment is by works. Hosea 12, 2. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Psalm 62, verse 12. For you will render to a man according to his works. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. As Pastor Nick taught us earlier, great and small, king or not, everybody standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Works are the criteria because they are the visible expression for everyone else to see of the focus and commitment of faith. Jesus' brother said it like this. Turn with me to James chapter two. In a more extended passage, James chapter two, beginning in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 
can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Good works are evidence that God has truly caused us, verse three, to be born again to a living hope according to his great mercy. If your life is not changed by that rebirth, you have not been born again. Genuine faith always manifests itself in good works of repentance, in good works of mercy, in good works of love, in good works of generosity, in good works of service, in good works of obedience out of love, of, of uh, overflowing love for God who has so greatly loved us. When we were in the pit of hell, deserving nothing but damnation and wrath and to be cast into the outer darkness, he acted first. And that is what Peter wants to communicate before he gives you the three imperatives that I asked you to underline earlier. God acted, and as a result of God's action, now you act in these ways. As a result of what God has done, you do something. And if you're here today and living your life in such a way as if God does not notice or God does not see or God does not care, Peter tells you to beware. God is paying very careful attention to all of the details of all of our lives. And one day he will bring it to an account. It may go unnoticed by others, and it is very possible that you might live your entire life without any consequence, but it does not go unnoticed before God, and you will be judged by how you have lived your life, believer. And if you're not a Christian, it is absolutely essential that you understand what we are saying to you. Salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. But judgment is by works. And God will judge you for every careless word and every careless deed. And you will stand before him 
Whether you came this morning because that's what you're supposed to do on a Sunday, whether you came because you like the people who are here, whether you came because you were hoping to earn favor with God, we are here to tell you that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. But God will judge you in this life if you do not turn to Christ in faith. You cannot work your way to God. You cannot be saved in any way other than faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise... The man that we came here and remembered yesterday for his life would have never been able to know the mercy of God in Christ. Revere God. The first reason, God is an impartial judge. Notice third, the second reason. Jesus' blood is precious. I just realized how confusing that was. Notice third, second. It all made sense when I wrote it. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. On the front side of the command in verse 17 is the first reason to revere God. And on the other side of the command in verses 18 and 19 is the second reason to revere God. There's surpassing value and eternal durability of the ransom paid for God's people. Peter says that gold and silver are perishable. They are not durable. They will not last. Though we treasure them in this life, And we live our whole lives trying to accumulate them and have more of them so that we might be more distinguished. As we saw yesterday, you can die without them and be very rich indeed. And Peter says that the blood of Jesus, in contrast to those perishable, not durable things, is precious and eternal. Peter contrasts what does not redeem, what is incredibly valuable in this life, but does not redeem, what is meaningful to so many people, but does not redeem silver or gold with the means by which believers are redeemed, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as a way to fan into flame our appreciation for the new relationship that we have with God by faith in Christ and our new status as Christians that we are the children of God, the people of God, inheritors of his kingdom, those who are kept in heaven, those who will most surely stand on the last day, those who will go through the judgment unscathed, those who can live now with hope of heaven and who can die in faith knowing that death does not have the last word so that we might have great joy in this life. Peter is trying to fan into flame our affections because he knows that our affections are so fickle. That is why so often all of us in this room begin to wonder, does God still love me? I don't feel like it. I don't feel anything. I am, I'm reading and I, I, I don't feel anything. It doesn't mean anything. Peter's saying, you don't have to feel anything. He felt great love for you. And he died for you. And whether you believe that right now or not, if you have trusted in his Christ, that is yours. Peter contrasts what does not redeem with what does redeem the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have been, verse 18, ransomed. 
liberated, redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. This is one way that Peter shows us that these people are Gentiles. He would have never spoken of Jews like that. They didn't think that their forefathers were those who were foolish. They thought of their forefathers as those who were wise. To them belonged the covenants. To them belonged the patriarchs. To them belonged the promises. These people, they lived as pagans. They offered sacrifices in pagan places. They did pagan things. But he tells them, you have been ransomed, set free, redeemed, liberated from this foolish way of life and have now been set on a new path. This way that you inherited from them is no longer your way. You have a new way before you. In Christ, we're set free from these empty pursuits by the precious blood of Christ, the spotless lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. No wonder John the Baptist was so overwhelmed when he saw Jesus. We don't need to prove that we matter to the world. The blood of Christ shed for you proves that you mattered. So often we live our whole lives as we're trying to prove to ourselves and everyone else, I'm valuable. I matter. I'm of significance. I'm going to do something of importance. And Peter holds up the precious blood of Christ and says, you matter. You want to know how precious you are to God? He shed the precious blood of Christ for you. He sent his son to die for you. He put his son to death on a cross for you. If you've ever wondered, does my life matter to God? Does he even know that I'm here? Does he even care that I'm suffering? Does he understand how depressed I am? How anxious I am? How frustrated I am? How hard this life is? How scared I am now in 2022? Look to these words and be reminded that he cared for you at great cost to himself, and he shed the precious blood of Christ for you because he loves you. And hear these words afresh. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The perishability of money is set in contrast to the preciousness of the blood, and it forces us to consider afresh the significance of Christ's death for us. Why is blood so precious? Because without it, no one can live. And the blood of Christ is the means by which you were ransomed, redeemed, set free, liberated, given an assured hope of heaven. For those who are struggling with sin in the room today, embroiled in patterns that you, you're thinking, I want to throw them off in 2022, but I still have yet to find any victory. The shed blood of Christ is your hope. You have been set free. You have been set free of all of the sins that bind you. 
They do not have ultimate say in your life. Appeal to the precious blood of Christ. Go to the throne of grace afresh. God is merciful. And he will give you strength in your weak moments. And here is why it is so precious. That when you fail, the assurance of Scripture, and you will fail, is that he will meet you afresh. He will forgive you of your sins again. And he will love you unconditionally still. And he will call you his child. And he will not look at you with an asterisk by your name. And he will raise you up on the last day. And he will look at you in the face and say, you are my son. You are my daughter. The precious blood of Christ was shed for you to give you hope, hope of forgiveness, hope of heaven. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice because he lived the perfect life. Peter tells us, verse 19, he was without blemish. How astonishing. He never sinned. No deceit was found in his mouth. He never committed error. He never judged somebody else. He never spoke words that were unkind. He never had any of the proclivities that we have. And yet, he died willingly for sinners, more willingly than we receive eternal life. I want to believe that Peter was remembering his own sins as he's writing to the people. Sins of denying Christ. Sins of sinking in the water because of his own unbelief. Sins of rebuking Jesus because he did not understand and did not like God's providential plan. What are you thinking, Jesus? And if I'm right, no wonder Peter describes the blood of Christ as precious. The spotless Lamb of God shed his precious blood for one who denied him and rejected him and failed him and mistreated him when he deserved damnation and hell and darkness. He did it for Peter, and he did it for you. If you have never trusted Christ, the precious blood of Christ is an invitation to hope. Come today. Come to the throne of grace. Trust in the Savior Jesus. Believe in the gospel. Repent of your sins. Confess him to be Lord. He will forgive you and he will never cast you out and he will always be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It is more enduring than your most difficult sin in your life that you cannot get away from. And believer, come to him afresh today. Trust him again today. Believe in him afresh now in this moment. Recommitting yourself. I will appeal to the precious blood of Christ that was shed for me because God loved me. He loves you. He loved you then. He loves you still. And his love will keep you. Valley Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers. You'll find in there one titled The Precious Blood of Christ. It says... Blessed Lord Jesus, before thy cross I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused thee to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns. 
the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body, the dying cries. Thy blood is the blood of incarnate God. It's worth infinite. It's value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper, born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me like a shadow, intermingling with my every thought, my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul. Sinner that I am, why should the sun give me light? The air supply me breath. The earth bear my tread. Its fruits nourish me. Its creatures serve my ends. Yet thy compassions yearn over me. Thy heart hastens to my rescue. Thy love endured my curse. Thy mercy bore my deserved stripes. Let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation, bathe in the blood tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation. The reason that we struggle with sin and we are so prideful in this life is because we have not been driven deep enough into the mercies of God in Christ. And when you walk near Christ and look at the cross, it is impossible to be proud. And you will not want to sin because the love of God displayed is so much more beautiful, so much more valuable. Struggling with sin, press into the cross. Weak in this life, press into the cross. Struggling in your marriage, press into the cross. Struggling in your parenting, press into the cross. Struggling with bitterness, discontentment, anger, anxiety, hopelessness, press into the cross. Look at it afresh. The precious blood of Christ shed for us. Revere God. The first reason, God is the impartial judge. The second reason, Jesus. Jesus' precious blood. Notice fourth, the point, the privilege of believers. Look in verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Christ was revealed at the end of the ages. We've been waiting, but what Peter's referring to here is the incarnation. Christ came. God promised that he would save us, and he always keeps his promises, and he sent his son, Emmanuel, to save us from our sins. He came for us, to be with us, to live the life that we could never live, to die the death we deserve to die, to be raised for our justification, and now has ascended into heaven and is in interceding for us. He was revealed at the end of the ages. Christ was revealed, though, for a purpose. Notice how personal Peter writes to these people. Even as he writes to the whole church, he writes personally. Christ was revealed for the sake of you, We would expect it to be, he was revealed for the sake of God's glory. He was revealed to make sure you knew that God is great and you are not great. Peter tells us, he came 
for a purpose, with a purpose, for your sake, to save you from your sins. The revelation of Christ is the reason, Peter tells us, you are believers in God. Without his coming, you would have never been a believer in God. You are not naturally good. You are naturally evil. You are not naturally righteous. You are naturally unrighteous. You are not somebody who has merited heaven. You have merited hell. You deserve judgment. And because he's come, you can now hope to be a believer in God. Faith in Christ is the avenue by which we now come to God and come near with confidence before the throne of God above. We draw near without fear because of what Christ has done for us. The resurrection of Christ and his subsequent glory provide the foundation of your faith and the foundation of your hope. And for Peter, faith and hope are synonymous. Faith and hope are synonymous, and he wants us to see that the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ provide that foundation for us. They are meaningless apart from each other. The death of Christ means nothing if he's not raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ means nothing if he did not die as a substitute in our place on the cross. Death, resurrection go together. He suffered as our substitute, and he was raised to glory for us. Hope reminds us when he speaks of this hope that our faith is not in the present order. We keep coming back to this point because Peter keeps hammering this point and driving it home. We are too short-sighted, and we are looking for something in this present order to give us comfort, to give us deliverance, to provide us a sense of value, of meaning. Peter says, with using this word hope, that we are looking beyond the present order to the world to come, a new age where we will be with God and we will be his people because of the precious blood of Christ. And friends, if that is boring to you, then you have not considered rightly what Peter is doing here as he tries to redirect our gaze. Peter doesn't say, pay attention to all the details around you. Peter says, look to the cross. One of the advantages of preaching here because they flip the sanctuary is there's the cross. Look to the cross. Keep it before you. All day, every day, the precious blood of Christ, reminding yourselves. That was the beauty of Boyd's funeral yesterday, reminding ourselves of how his past was to see how bright his future is right now. And as we sang, when that poor lispering, stammering tongue stopped singing in this life, he began to sing a sweeter song a greater, more noble song than we are capable of singing together this morning, but is the song of the redeemed that we will all sing. Peter says, look to the cross, the precious blood of Christ, as he reminds us of what it cost God to save us. A few years ago, a ministerial colleague was caught in a deep web of sin. He came forward, he confessed that sin sin that had affected him, his work, his family, his employer, his church. 
And later, when speaking with another mutual friend about what it was that actually brought him to come forward and to confess it when it looked like it was all kind of being managed and going unnoticed, he told him the story of how they had moved and moved to a church where they regularly took the Lord's Supper. And having to come to the Lord's Supper and regularly be confronted with the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, having to consider what it, what it cost Jesus to secure his redemption, he was convicted. Convicted to the point where he couldn't come to the table at first. And then convicted to the point where he realized, I have to do something about it. And then convicted to the point where he realized, even if I experience all of the consequences I most fear in this life, none of them, not one of them, is worth living a lie outside of repentance and not coming to the cross. And perhaps that's where some of you are today. You are confronted in singing and in reading and in confessing and through preaching and now visibly with these elements that are both an assurance and a warning, an assurance of hope of heaven and a warning of judgment, what it costs God to provide redemption. That is why when we come to the table, sometimes we spend so much time trying to explain how do you know when to not come to the table. We call that fencing the table. Not because we don't want people to come. We want everybody to come. We pray that the Lord would fill the room with people to come, that there'd be so many people to come that we wouldn't know where to put everybody. We want people to come and to be assured of the gospel. But we also want to be reminded that these precious realities remind each and every single one of us of the severity of our sin and what it cost God to forgive us of our sins. If you are someone who is struggling with sin that you're hiding today, the most godly thing that you can do is not come to the table. Until you repent of that sin, or if it's against somebody else, you go and make that right with them so that you can approach the table with a clear conscience because these are holy mysteries. As God encourages us and feeds us with this meal in anticipation of a greater meal, a meal where we will never need to eat it again. We will be able to celebrate and it will satisfy us completely for all eternity when he makes all things new and the new heavens and the new earth. We have to take of this one regularly now to remind ourselves of that meal, but that meal will satisfy completely when our redemption is finalized for us and we stand in his presence with great confidence. But for those of us who are struggling and hiding today, repent. The Savior will meet you with forgiveness. He is merciful. Perhaps you need to do it right where you're at. Repent, trust in Christ, hope in Christ. He will forgive you. Perhaps you need to go to someone else. Go to them. Go when we're praying in a moment. Go when we're singing in a moment and ask for that forgiveness. Or abstain. But everyone else, Come with great confidence. If you are trying to repent and trying to put sin to death and trying to be honest to the best of your ability about who God is in Christ and who you are and how you live before him and honest about trying to put sins to death in your life, then come knowing 
Knowing two things. One, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, all who would come to him. And he will never, ever, ever, ever cast them out. If you've repented of your sins, if you have been baptized, if you have, are a member of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches and you're a member in good standing, we invite you to come. In just a few moments, I'm going to ask you to stand when I pray. At that time, there will be people who will come forward, and there'll be a couple lines. You'll come, and you'll take a piece of the bread and a cup of the juice, and you will go back to your seat, and we'll take it together. But for, perhaps for some of you who are here who don't feel com- comfortable coming and tearing off a piece or grabbing from that, that same tray where everyone else is reaching, we're going to have some communion kits down here. We'd love to serve you those as well. Take those kits, go back to your seat and then we'll observe the meal together. When I pray, those who are serving, please come forward and prepare to serve the meal. I'm gonna ask you to stand at this time. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, who we know as Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the precious blood. The blood of Christ shed for us that we might have the forgiveness of sins. We ask, God, in the name of Christ, that right now you would give us confidence as we approach the table. And Father, we pray that right now, for those who are here who are not yet Christians, whether they are children or adults, whether they're new or old here, we ask, God, that you would use not only what we have sung and read and confessed and preached, but now see on display in the sacrament here of the Lord's Supper to call them to faith in Christ, to remove the heart of stone and insert the heart of flesh and to cause them to be born again. And we ask, Father, that you would nourish our weak and faint hearts today. Life is more difficult than we want it to be. And our sin is dogging us more than we wish that it was. And we feel needy, and we are. But we come to this table assured that you will nourish us And that this table is a foretaste of what is before us, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when you will let us hear the wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom of your master. Amen. Come, take and eat.